Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, as we collectively gear up for 2020, we get a preview of some of the strategies and work that lies ahead to retake the Senate, keep the House, and win back the White House. We check in with our friends Chris Petzold, founder and head of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, and Will Casey, communications director for the Washington State Democrats, for a robust discussion about the congressional races here in the state and also about the presidential race, as well as the impeachment process and what it might mean for the election. That is all ahead, so stay with us. Well, it goes without saying that 2020 is going to be the most important election of our lifetimes full stop. I am imagining that everybody listening is going to be doing everything that he or she can in 2020 to help take the Senate, retain the House, and especially take back the White House. We are going to be working here at the state level to make all of that happen. And so as we gear up, I thought we would check in with a couple of dear friends of the pod to discuss the state of play, both with the Washington Democratic Party and also at the grassroots level. And so we have with us our friend Chris Petzold. She is, of course, founder and head of Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hello, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. And Will Casey, communications director for the Washington State Democrats. Hello, Will. Thanks for having me on, Stefan. Always great to be here. I was going to ask if you guys were both feeling fired up, but Will, I know you're a little bit under the weather, so (laughs) I'll I'll, uh, point that question at Chris. Are, Are you feeling fired up for 2020? Yes. That was a it. long pause. You know, and, and seriously, if you're if you're where I am, I mean, I'm like, I am planning on taking. This is just a heads up to listeners. I'm planning on taking a few weeks off uh, before we get into 2020 because this has been a long year, and I think we all need a break before we uh, jump into the the thick of it. Uh, what say you all? You read my mind exactly, and that was the reason for the pause. <laughs> All right. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So let's just jump in uh, and let's start with the congressional races here in the state. Um, The three that are going to get the most focus are, of course, the third, uh, the eighth, and now with the retirement of Denny Heck, the 10th. Will, I want to start with the third. This is a district in the southwestern part of the state. It includes Vancouver. This has been held by Republican Jamie Herrera Butler since 2010. Just give us a sense, well, what should we know about the third uh, for those of us who don't live there? Well, I think, uh, thanks for the question, Stefan. I, uh, the third is a, a personal uh, district for me. I, I worked there in the general election last fall. Um, and I think folks should know that it's a it's a pretty representative district, uh, I think, of all the different communities across Washington. You've got a mix of urban uh, areas just across the river from Portland and Vancouver and Clark County, where the vast majority of the, or the biggest population centers are in the district. Uh, but you've also got a large swath of rural communities um, who have been struggling with, you know, the long commuting distances to their rural hospitals, uh, difficulties getting economic development in their areas, um, and even you know basic infrastructure investments like uh, broadband internet still need to make their ways into those communities. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough district for Democrats because you know like like you said, Republicans have held it since 2010. Um, but I think that we've got a, a good chance at flipping it this this fall. Well, you know when I was doing a little research about it, I will just add a couple little uh, trivia notes. Um, I, I note that it has changed hands between Democrats. Democrats and Republicans over the last 30 years. Uh, And then a fun fact, uh, the third 
elected the first Democratic woman from Washington to Congress all the way back in 1960. Her name was uh, Julia Butler Hansen. So same initials almost as Jamie Herrera Butler. But uh, yeah, so kind of makes it an interesting district in that way. I'll just ask you, Will, what, what do you feel that Dems need to do this time around to win in 2020? They got very close with Carolyn Long and within five points, I think, in uh, 2018. What needs to change this time around? Yeah, I think uh, we need to just continue to build on the strategies that we put into play last uh, last time around. I think uh, something that people don't give enough credit for is when you don't have a serious candidate on our side of the aisle for uh, several election cycles in a row, a lot of that ground game and the infrastructure in that area tends to atrophy, right? Mm. And so Republican PCOs are very committed in that district. Uh, we were actually, uh, you know, our tracking polling in the fall last, uh, last year showed us leading going into um, the voting period and it was only a late surge of um, ballots from the more rural areas of Clark County that I think really did us in. Um, and I think that was due to the Republican PCO game that is still very strong there. So I think we've got to focus on really building up our volunteer efforts down there, which thankfully uh, the Democratic Party has been doing over the past year. And I know there are several strong uh, Democratic campaigns doing the same thing as well. So we're building on, on our successes in sort of reviving the infrastructure of uh, last time around. And I think uh, with the uh, expert volunteers that we have now who are going to be out there knocking doors, making phone calls, making sure you know younger folks are getting registered. Um, I think that's going to make the difference in 2020. Yeah, man. Yeah, the I word infrastructure for sure. And I know that that is a big talking point of uh, Washington State Democratic Chair Tina Podlodowski. Uh, Chris, give us a sense of what indivisible groups are going to be doing to support the race in the third. Well, we have been talking about this for actually a long time since um, even before 2018 uh, the 2018 election was over. Um, and we, we've we actually built a new coalition of indivisible groups across the state called the Washington Indivisible Network. Um, shout out to my fellow organizers of that, Louise Pathé, Kat Pitkin, and Robin Gittleman. Here, here. Um, yeah. In October, uh, we, had, we organized a statewide gathering and we made um, some plans for the third and lots of connections uh, we plan to have at least two organized events where we uh, bring groups to the third to knock doors, um, and we'll be using our network to amplify the works or the work of the group of the groups in and around the third um, district. So we're very committed to winning down there. And then, of course, um, our home district, Chris, yours and mine, the eighth. Uh, this is going to be one that we're going to need to keep. We flipped it in uh, 2018. It is uh, the only district that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the only district that spans the Cascades. Uh, It includes Auburn and Issaquah on the west and Wenatchee and Ellensburg to the east. It was pretty much created to be a Republican safe district. So, you know, talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you foresee in retaining that seat in 2020? Are those going to be different than the things that you did in 2018, do you think? No, I think that we'll just do the same thing that we did, only a lot better, a lot more, a lot more organized, um, a lot more experienced. Um, We're just going to knock doors, knock doors, knock doors. Um, (laughs) On the last Saturday uh, before the 2018 um, election uh, last year, Robin Gittleman and I uh, were the captains of a swing left bus that went from Seattle down to the southern end of our east uh, district um, to Bonnie Lake. 
And on the way back up, the campaign, Kim Schreier's campaign, said that on that day, in the Schreier campaign alone, 26,000 doors were knocked. Oh, my God. That's phenomenal. I know. And that doesn't even include, you know, there was also uh, canvassing being done through the Dems uh, coordinated campaign. And um, so we have so much strength um, in our motivated and organized boots on the ground. Um, So many indivisibles from around the area outside of the eighth even jumped in to help in our district. And we're so grateful for that. And uh, so we'll, we'll be looking to do that again. Um, One thing that we did was we gamified our door knocking. (laughs) So we had like a contest um, and I see kind of a statewide contest emerging where we can, See, yeah, so that'll be really fun. Everybody loves a game. Everybody loves a challenge. Good. Okay. Win yeah. valuable prizes, you guys, and, and our exactly. democracy. So the, mo- <laughs> the most valuable prize of all. And the White House. And the White House. Yeah. And then uh, let's talk about the 10th very briefly. Um, th- as we know, uh, Congressman Denny Heck just announced his retirement after decades of service. Uh, I would love to just take a moment to just talk about what his retirement means and and his contributions. Will, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts? Oh, I mean, I think that uh, Representative Heck has been someone to make the Washington delegation or the Washington Democrats uh, extremely proud, especially in the last uh, just year or so, working with his service on the Intelligence Committee, getting us all the facts that we need to make a judgment on whether or not the president, uh, and in my opinion, he definitely did, uh, you know, committed an impeachable offense in um, how he withheld the military aid from Ukraine. Um, and so I think that we should all be extremely thankful to Representative Heck for his distinguished service. Uh, and But it goes back decades. I mean, he was first mm-hmm. elected to the state legislature all the way back in 1976. So I think that uh, Denny is leaving behind a, a distinguished track record of, of service to our state and, and, and can be proud of, of the life he's led in public service. And rest assured, uh, listeners, we will get to impeachment in just a second, because uh, it's definitely something that I want to get uh, both of your thoughts on. Uh, but Chris, your thoughts on Denny Heck? Well, um, I definitely wish him well and thank him for his service and agree with everything that Will said. But I wish he would have waited until after 2020. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's going to make, you know, next year even more interesting, like we can take any more. Uh, but um, I know that our friends um, and Indivisible Pialop and in the 25th LD are ready to get to work down there. So it's going to be great. Yeah. And in fact, I was just speaking at Indivisible Tacoma last night and uh they are definitely fired up and ready to go and ready to defend that seat. Will, what do you think we should expect in terms of keeping that seat in, in Democratic hands in 2020? I think it's it's a pretty safe Democratic district. Uh, I mean, as, as, and I think that it will attract a number of highly qualified candidates. Um, you know, those kinds of, of relatively safe seats don't come open all that often. And so when they do, you know, you usually see, you know, we're fortunate enough here in Washington to have quite a roster of, of quality candidates who can step in and, and make us proud serving in, in D.C. Um, and I think that you'll see a number of, of candidates jump in and, and do their best to make a, a case to voters there. I mean, I don't think that it's something that we need to worry too, too much about, um, especially in, in contrast to the eighth and the third, um, respectively. Um, but I think that, you know, it's always good to have an open primary there. And I think the competition between the candidates will get everyone fired up and, and actually, I think, help our statewide 
Democratic numbers uh, going into the fall. Well, you know, as we get into the fall, um, we'll be watching that very closely. And uh, certainly we intend on the program to uh, to have some of those candidates here on the show. And so this is something, of course, Will, that I'll be checking back with you on to uh, to get your thoughts down the line. I want to shift over to the presidential race. Um, Chris, you have picked a candidate at this point, and you have been out canvassing here in the state. Uh, What are you hearing in terms of engagement and interest in the presidential race at this point? Uh, I think a few are very engaged in in watching the race. I was um, kind of surprised to see the lack of engagement, honestly, Um, and most are surprised to hear how fast the primary is coming up here in Washington. It's a, it's a different process and it's coming up soon. Uh, some of the, the themes that I've heard are like, uh, make life boring again. Um, <laughs> I, I can put that on a bumper sticker. I could live with that. Me, me too. Like, please. Uh, and I think healthcare and the environment are two of the most important issues that I've been hearing on the doors. Yeah. Well, so I know that National Indivisible has been very carefully sort of tiptoeing around the idea of a primary endorsement. Um, And they're not saying one way or another at this point. But I'm wondering, will Indivisible Washington's eighth be making a primary endorsement? No, uh, that's very highly doubtful. I I see very little appetite for it. Uh, last last year in the 2018 primary for our congressional seat, uh, our group led a coalition, um, and we endorsed in the House race last year. We had a very uh, transparent and detailed process. It was a ton of work, and I just don't see the cost benefit playing out here in the presidential. And I recommend, actually, that people make a difference by working for the candidate that they like, as I have been. Well, okay, so then you have naturally shifted me into the discussion about uh, electability uh, as concerns the primary. Um, And yeah, and endorsements can be really divisive because, among other reasons, we are already seeing this very familiar split between Democratic voters who want a big structural change and then the so-called moderates. Um, I'll just ask both of you how you see and frame the question of electability. Will, let's start with you. Oh, my God. Uh, All right. So this is by far. um, And so I should start this entire discussion by saying, you know, in my capacity as spokesperson for the Democratic Party here in Washington, um, since we're playing a role in administering the primary, uh, you know, verifying signatures so that folks can get on the ballot, that sort of thing. um, I am aggressively neutral in the in the primary race. Nothing that I'm about to say should be taken as as an endorsement or, or, uh, you know, positive for any individual candidate. Um, But I do think that the uh, issue of electability gets way too much play uh, in in the primary so far. I think it's totally understandable that everyone is very focused on wanting to beat Donald Trump. Um, but I think that we are really, if we expect the nominee to do all of the work just by the virtue of who they are, uh, that we're setting ourselves up for failure, right? Um, one of the things that I've been doing in uh, getting ready for 2020 is going back and reading some books about the Obama campaigns in 08 and 12. And one of the things that uh, emerges in in both those elections is heading into election day, uh, the campaign viewed a a wide variety of paths to 270, right? And so if we're focusing on maybe just squeaking by or just getting, uh, you know, 271 electoral votes, you know, that's entirely too uncomfortable for for me (laughs) going into 2020. So I think we need to be focused on building a, a huge movement that's going to compete in a wide swath of states um, and and really make sure that we have a number of different routes 
to victory uh, next fall. And I think that that's possible with any of the leading Democratic uh, contenders. And so I think that uh, at this stage in the process, folks should just be focusing on what who inspires them, who they believe in and who they, you know, feel good getting up at all hours to go and knock doors or enter data or make phone calls or doing whatever it is that they can do to help their, you know, specific person get elected because we're all going to have to come together at the end of this process. And, and you know, if you've been swallowing some bitter medicine for, you know, eight or nine months in the beginning of the process, you're not going to be engaged and, and fired up by the time we get to next November. So um, I think that folks just need to you know, look at the candidates, whoever they, they like, and just go to work for that person. Chris, I see you nodding uh, vigorously. Uh, you want to add anything to that? <laughs> yeah. When people ask me about electability, I want to reply with uh, Nancy Pelosi's famous uh, comment, don't mess with me on that. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm allergic to that phrase because I think it's code word for the safe candidate or a cinema synonym for the white male candidate. I mean, who would have ever said that Trump was elect electable? Sure. And uh, with with respect to that being applied to women, let's remind ourselves that a woman won the popular vote last time. OK. And um, as Will said, instead of worrying about who's electable and, you know, all playing pundits here, uh, let's find the candidate that is mo that is most aligned with your values and ignites your passion. Check out the Indivisible scorecard. I mean, it is really important that we we pick the right nominee here. And yes, of course, we will get behind, work for, donate to whoever the nominee is, but work for whomever uh, strikes your passion now and whoever you believe in. Yeah. And I think the, the one just uh, coda to that, Chris, is just that, you know, I think the best judgment for who is going to inspire other people is just like who inspires you. Right. Yeah. And I think this whole like trying to put yourself in the mind of, you know, someone who the media is telling you is like the critical swing voter is always an abstraction. It's always looking at the last election. You know, who knows? We you know, who knows uh, who the pivotal voter is going to be in, in 2020? We we really don't know. And honestly, um, you know, I think that. Uh, a lot of us are, are not quite ready to believe that it could be true, but I think that President Trump is actually going to be quite a liability on the ballot next fall. I um, hope you're right. And, and you know, I'm just going to go ahead, not because I necessarily believe this, but I'm going to go ahead and play devil's advocate because I hear this a lot. So I am an administrator on a, uh, a Facebook page, and there has been a lot of hand-wringing about elect, you know, putting somebody forth who is electable. And people keep saying, well, sure, get behind whoever you believe in for the primary, but understand that whoever wins the primary goes on to the general. And so that gets us into some polling. And Will, I know you wanted to traipse into this, and so I'll set you up here. So uh, recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, New York Times upshot Siena College poll showed Trump leading in three battleground states of Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And then from a Nate Cohn article who writes uh, for such things in the New York Times, quote, nearly two-thirds of voters in six battleground states who voted for President Trump in 2016, but for Democratic congressional candidates in 2018, say they intend to back the president. Should this concern us? What are your thoughts, Will? Okay, so this is easily my biggest pet peeve of the entire primary so far. Um, and so, and I say this as with a full um, disclosure that, you know, I 
work on campaigns. This is my job. So I realize that this is what I'm about to say is a little bit self-interested, but campaigns matter, right? Like the long hours that we put in, the billions plus of dollars that we spend on our elections, uh, we wouldn't do those things if they didn't have an influence, right? And so the, yes, there is a certain part of the primary that is playing out in the national media. And yes, the reputation that the various uh, candidates on our, on our side have going into the general election um, will have some influence on how voters in those battleground states receive uh, messages from those candidates. However, extremely large however, um, <laughs> Right now, we're polling states where only Trump is running paid media. I think this is actually uh, one of the benefits of having uh, Michael Bloomberg in the race, is even as he's advertising um, for you know positive spots for himself. And again, this is not a I'm neutral here. This is not an endorsement of Michael Bloomberg. Um, a lot of his ads Please do have do some that. negative. <laughs> yeah, we don't his, want to derail you too much, but I think you're making candidate. a really good point because, you know, Michael Bloomberg is not constrained by the amount of money that he can spend. So if there is exactly. any upside to having a billionaire buy his way into this race, it is the fact that uh, he can spend unlimited amounts of money uh, in ads against Trump in ways that other candidates can't at this point. Right. Right, right. And so what I'm trying to say here is that uh, we're pulling a media environment right now that is not like we know it's not going to persist going into the general election. Right. Voters are going to be bombarded with television ads, digital ads, paid media, um, direct mail pieces from all sorts of, uh, of entities, both our Democratic nominee and the uh, wealth of independent organizations, you know, such as National Indivisible, other super PACs uh, are going to get involved in the general election um, next fall. And so pull like these are the best poll numbers Trump is ever going to have, in my opinion, right? Because he's he's only going to have this unique circumstance where we are not opposing his paid message um, from between now and the general in, in the general election, and that's a problem, right? I mean, that's part of the reason yeah. why most incumbent presidents get reelected. Um, however, I think that once you have the democratic energy and enthusiasm united behind one candidate, we'll see those things shift dramatically. Um, and then finally, I also want to point out that a lot of these polls are done, you know, on head-to-head -head, uh, matchups against uh, uh, the the front runners in the in the primary so far. And I really want to point out that just because in these polls voters say they quote have an opinion of a candidate does not mean in any way, shape, or form that they are that. Um, they have exactly the same amount of information or the same specific information that they're going to be using to decide between whoever our nominee is and President Trump on Election Day, right? Like I said, there's going to be billions plus of of paid media spent to try and influence these folks. And so I, I really think that it, of all of the things that you should be using to determine um, who you should be supporting in the primary, head-to-head uh, -head polling in states where we are running no paid media and there is no ground game uh, is just really not a good piece of evidence at this point. Well, and Chris, I'll tee you up on this. Um, democratic enthusiasm matters, right? I mean, this is something that Indivisible has been talking about uh, uh, quite a bit. It was something that Leah and Ezra talked about when, when I spoke with them uh, very recently when we were talking about uh, the release of their book. And um, there's a pollster that I think most of us are familiar with named Rachel Bittekofer. She was the only pollster to accurately call the 2018 blue wave. Um, her data showed that the victory relied 
more on motivating people to vote who haven't voted than it does uh, converting the so-called Obama-Trump voter. Um, She also showed that anti-Trump sentiment actually played a surprisingly big role. But that really, I think, uh, fits right in line with not only your beliefs, Chris, but also what you've seen on the ground, right? Yeah, I don't believe in polls. I believe in the work. And we're we're here to do the work from now until next November. And I think I think the election is on the Democratic side. It's just it's ours to lose. I mean, how can he possibly win again after all this? So, um, yeah, I (laughs) don't jinx us, man. (laughs) No, I'm not. But I'm just saying, like, I am very positive because I think we after what we saw in 2018, we have a very, very engaged grassroots um, just incredible energy out there. So we're just resting right now. We're, we're going to be out there soon. Yeah. And I think that, uh, something that, uh, folks, especially in organizations like Indivisible can take into account as we're trying to define like what electability means is to kind of, is to make sure as we're organizing for 2020 in these battleground States, uh, that we do the opposite of what we did in 2018 in terms of the swing left idea. Right. And so what I mean is, uh, in here in Seattle, for example, we had a lot of folks, traveling outwards from Seattle into the 8th Congressional District to knock doors and turn out uh, votes. And of course, in uh, relatively safe blue states like Washington and the presidential battleground, of course, we need to make sure we keep our eye on the, the, the 2018 midterm freshman class and make sure they you know, keep their seats and we keep control of the House. But in these battleground states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, we need to make sure that we don't fail to make sure that the uh, Organizing lessons that we learned in these swing districts get brought back into the districts that are safe Democratic seats because, uh, to your point about what does electability mean, it means we win the state, right? However that happens. And so one of the things that we fell short in in 2016 is making sure we turned out uh, communities of color, relatively low income communities in urban areas in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit. And it's just as important that we, you know, center those folks and make sure that they are turned out and and have a reason to support our nominee and, and feel like they're being invested in. Because frankly, you know, a lot of the attention in the midterms was not put on those communities. Right. And so we need to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, we keep our eye on that ball. That's true. And I see some candidates doing a better job of that than others. So they definitely need to hear that from you, Will. For sure. And, you know, it is a different problem from the House race in 2018, um, where the Dems could find a candidate who is going to fit their district um, with the presidential race. The candidate kind of has to appeal across the country. Uh, We obviously are not going to solve this today, but um, you guys will be back uh, this year to talk about this a lot. So uh, to be continued on that. Let's shift over and talk about impeachment. Okay, Um, I'm going to take a deep breath here before I do. So on Tuesday, the House issued two articles of impeachment, one on abuse of power, one on obstruction of justice against Congress. And I think a lot of people were hoping that the Dems would go wider than just the two charges related to Ukraine. Um, Chris, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? I wasn't. I think it's actually smart to just be very uh, precise and tactical and address the issues that were in the the that are involved with the Ukraine situation. We obviously know that there's more than just that, but I think I don't know if the American public has a, a much of an appetite to do that. And I think, like, with respect to bringing in aspects of the Russia investigation, I don't. I think that would be a really bad idea um, because of the, how badly. Mueller fumbled the rollout 
I, I respect him a ton, but sure. he was not an example of courage. I think the times and frankly, how the, how Trump and the Republicans act, it was, it was called for him to do something a bit different. Um, but I think that focusing on these two articles that can clearly be proven, especially if we get some of the witnesses that are being blocked now, I think it's a smart move. Well, I'm going to put on my devil's advocate hat one more time and just say that I think the argument for going wider is that if they had included charges from the Mueller investigation or, say, even his campaign violations around the the hush money uh, payment or the violations of the emoluments clause or on and on and on, then the Republicans in the Senate would not be able to, and even the Republicans in the House would not be able to frame their vote against impeachment simply by saying that they don't think he did anything impeachable regarding Ukraine, that they would have to take a stand on Trump's corruption more generally. Will, what are your thoughts, Sarah? Uh, I think that in this case, actually uh, limiting the articles to the two uh, makes a better more, a tighter case uh, against exactly that Republican counterargument. I think as a communications person, I always prefer a simpler message, mm. right? And uh, just what, like, what aid did the president withhold and why did he withhold it is a pretty succinct uh, summary of what of the, the problem here. And I think that the Republican response of, oh, I don't think he did anything wrong is just not tenable at this point, right? You've got the top U.S. <laughs> diplomat in the country saying, I think it's crazy that we're withholding aid uh, in order to help a political uh, uh, campaign. This is absurd, right? This is an abuse of power. And then he covered it up when Congress uh, came knocking to investigate, right? Like this is as clear cut as you can possibly make it. And I think it's important uh, because voters have been saturated in such and so many different stories that are a variation of Trump is a horrible person um, that this stands out as something unique and different. And uh, the forward-looking nature of the intervention uh, in Ukraine and the requested investigation of Vice President Biden, I think, is something that distinguishes it uh, materially from the Russia investigation. So I think that this was actually a really wise decision um, on the part of the the House Democrats. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, the needle really hasn't moved. And so I'm not entirely sure what the benefit would have been to add a number of different charges. And I think if the Democrats do this right, those two charges can kind of stand on their own and really speak for the corruption writ large. And then something interesting just came up. Uh, We have noted that on the Democratic side, there are, I think, between six and 10 uh, so-called moderates who are talking about breaking ranks and not voting to impeach. Any idea what's going on here, Will? Um, I don't have an idea, honestly. I mean, I think that uh, this is a really old kind of consultant-driven line of thinking where, uh, you know, Republicans who voted against the uh, Trump tax cut bill did not see really an electoral benefit for that. Democrats who voted against uh, Obamacare back in 2009 or 2010 did not uh, experience any better outcomes in the 2010 midterms. Um, Really just, you know, in an era where politics is so polarized just being of the same party as this as this unpopular president or you know or if you're if impeachment is unpopular in your, in your district just being as the same party as Nancy Pelosi is gonna completely swamp that narrative so um, I'm not really sure what the thinking is there I'm not sure either but Chris I will just put it to you I mean it's really got a stick in the craw of 
a lot of grassroots activists who worked so hard to flip the House in 2018, specifically because we wanted to hold Donald J. Trump accountable. And, you know, you, you could say that maybe this is a way for Pelosi to try to allow some members in purple or red districts to try to retain their seats. But there are only about, you know, six to 10 of these people. And there are people in far redder districts who are making a very brave vote um, to proceed with impeachment. Um, I mean, I don't really have a question here other than just to say it's pretty outrageous, right? Absolutely. I, I have no idea what the calculation is there on their part, but all I can say is I feel a primary coming on. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, <laughs> so, all right, you guys. So presuming that the Senate acquits, um, what's the optimal outcome for Democrats in your mind? Will? Uh, I think it's that we have every single Republican senator on the record as to whether or not this level of corruption and uh, foreign intervention in our elections is, is acceptable to them, right? I think that that this is really a, a pivotal moment in American history as to whether or not we can keep our republic. Yeah, Chris, uh, Agree. any thoughts? Uh, yeah, yeah, and I think I was on, on your show, I don't know, maybe six months ago. And, you know, I think I mentioned at the time, because this is, this is basically the outcome that we have always expected because of how corrupt uh, McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate are. And I think that the the thing that we need to do is just hold hold this around, hang this around their neck in 2020. Theirs and Trump's, you know, being an impeached president isn't exactly a badge of honor. And, you know, as we did with health care and the tax scam and gun safety, and we used it against them. And the Republican Party is going to be synonymous with not holding upholding the rule of law or the constitution and the history books they're going to be linked with corruption and i'm just glad i'm on the right side of history here here yeah no i think that there are a number of people who are going to have to decide uh on which side of history they stand uh names that jump immediately to mind are murkowski collins gardner mcsally tillis yeah. uh, many others and we'll we'll see what they what they choose to do um word from indivisible national is that members of Congress and Senate offices have been getting three times as many anti-impeachment callers as pro-impeachment callers. So, uh, guys, let's light up those phones. And then just one last reminder that the night before the House vote, we are going to be holding an impeachment eve rally, uh, a number of them across the state. In fact, I think we're almost at 500 across the country to show our support for our members of Congress and voting to impeach. And I will have a link for that for listeners at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Um, Will and Chris, um, to be continued, like I say, uh, thank you guys so much. I hope you have a great holiday. Happy New Year. All that. Thanks for having me on, Stefan. Happy holidays, everybody. That is it for this week's show. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to Chris Petzold and Will Casey. Special thanks, as always, to Lori Caldwell. And especially my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.